You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles or pull it up on your phone. Let me read for us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we start this morning. Father, how good you are to give us the words of life. May your spirit speak through me. May these words on these pages come to life as we commit ourselves to following you. Father, convict our hearts. Show us where we have strayed and give us life and obedience to you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So we have been in a series called Christian Atheism. And this week, um, our theme is, I'm a Christian. Is that funny? I'm a Christian, but what's mine is mine. You're welcome. (laughs) So Lydia and I uh, often listen to this podcast, and... If you know what I'm talking about, then we're going to be best friends that you listen to this podcast too. But um, they, if they're going to say something unpopular, something that's somewhat controversial, they call it a spicy take. (laughs) And so before they, they preface what they're going to say with like, hey, I'm just telling you it's a spicy take. You might be really mad at me after I say this. So I feel like I need to preface this talk with the fact that this is a spicy take from Jesus. Don't take it up with me. You can take it up with him. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that we're talking about money and possessions this week. Um, A lot of us probably got a good chunk of money dropped into our bank accounts this week. Um, And I don't know about you, If you've been talking about getting this big chunk of money dropped in your bank account, there's been a lot of memes going around about it. One of my favorites is someone that's like, you know, the ice cream machine is always broken at McDonald's. So next time I go to McDonald's, since I have this big chunk of money, I'm going to go there and be like, fine, I'll just buy it from you. I'll just fix it with all this money. But in our family, we've been having lots of money conversations this week. We've had things break. Rust has been destroying our, <laughs> our washing machine and our dryer and our car 
If you've seen our car, you know what that, what rust destroying a car looks like. And so I haven't thought that it's a coincidence that we're about to talk about money and possessions this week. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to forsake the worldliness of possessions and turn towards Jesus in this time? Because we in this country, we struggle with something called individualism. We are the epitome of the country that says, what's mine is mine. Get your hands off of my stuff. Don't tell me what to do with my stuff. And a life that says, what's mine is mine, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't come out of left field. It's born from a series of intentional decisions in which we orient ourselves towards the ways of the world and away from the kingdom of God. This doesn't happen overnight. And so we need to learn from Jesus in the Sermon, in the, in the sermon on the Mount what it means to reorient ourselves to the ways of Jesus, to his way. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been talking about this upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. It exposes our idols and our idolatry of things and of people and of possessions. But really, it's an invitation to a real life, the kingdom life that can only be found in worshiping the right God. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just a new set of ethics that we replace an old set of ethics. It's about learning about and living out of God's creational intent, his creational norms for all of life for the sake of the entire world. These creational norms are the ways that God has purposed from the very beginning of time. What we read in Genesis, God has been preparing and producing these creational norms within us so that we are formed as the people of God to live in the world, in the ways that would bring flourishing to us, but not just to us, that we would be blessed in order that we could be a blessing to the rest of the world. These creational norms create flourishing in our relationship with God and with each other and with the non-human creation. It's not just about our relationships with one another and our relationships with God. It also impacts the way we live in the world, the way we treat the world, the way that we steward the world. My friend Danae often talks about this create, these creational norms as like a plank of wood. And if you rub your hand along the wood, I wish I had a piece up here, but I didn't want to, I'm not masochistic. So if you rub your hand along the grain of the wood, then everything's okay, right? You're going with the creational norms. You're going with the grain of the wood. The second you take your hand and you rub it the other way against the grain of the wood, all of a sudden your hand is full of splinters and it's full of pain. And we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount kind of comparing and contrasting what does it look like to live within the grain of God's creational norms that produces flourishing? And what does it look like to go against the creational norms which produces pain and destruction and devastation? Clint did an incredible job last week with a really hard word about what does it mean to use our bodies in the direction of God's creational norms? What does it mean for our bodies to glorify God that produce flourishing, not just for us, but for each other, for one another, and for the world? So today we're talking about worldly possessions and worldly pursuits. And what does it mean 
to run our hands along the grain of God's creational norms. These words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are kind of like smelling salts that wake us up. And they show us, oh, I, I think I've been sleeping, just asleep at the wheel, going with the world, going with what the world tells me I'm supposed to be doing and how the world tells me I'm supposed to be using my possessions and my money. And Jesus, in this passage, gives us three comparison pictures that wake us up and they reorient our hearts towards kingdom generosity, towards the ways that God wishes for us to submit ourselves to him in kingdom generosity. So the first comparison that we see is treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. Jesus isn't saying that it's bad to have things. Maybe, maybe he's convicting your heart and telling you, throw away all your possessions and give everything to the poor and go and follow me. Maybe. But he's not saying it's bad to have things. He's not even necessarily talking about how much money is in our bank account or material wealth. What are these treasures on earth that he's talking about? He's talking about the idols of the world and, or the goals of our life. And those are really easy to see, in my opinion, if we, if we look, take a little landscape bird's eye view of especially our, our time and our place and our culture. The first one is material wealth, money. We are the wealthiest country in the world, and yet we have trouble thinking that we have enough. Um, someone asked John D. Rockefeller once, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. And I often feel like that. We, Jay and I talk about this often because when we moved here, we moved here with nothing. And it, we, we felt like, oh, we don't have enough. And now here we are six years later with two jobs and we still often <laughs> are confronted with our own hearts that say, we don't have enough. We don't have enough to keep going. We don't have enough to, to do the things that we want to do. So that's one, a common treasure or a goal on earth. Number two is success. Our culture tells us the purpose of life is to climb the corporate ladder, to get better and better and better and better at your job, and to do that no matter what it takes, no matter who you have to step on to get there, no matter what you have to compromise in order to get there. The point of life is to climb the corporate ladder. Number three is fame. This is, uh, this is something I think that's particularly poignant in our time. Instagram and Facebook and the likes that we get and the way that we try and cultivate our life so that we can get more people to follow us and more likes. And, and I often scroll through Instagram and I think, what is that person famous for? And if you look through it with those eyes, you think, oh, it's really a poignant contrast to what the world considers someone should be famous for and what the kingdom says someone should be famous for. The fourth one is brand management. How often do we put all of our stock? It's kind of attached to the, first, the other one, fame, but how much time do we spend with reputation cultivation? making sure everyone thinks that we're okay and everyone thinks that we have it all together. 
there have been a couple of different instances um, in the news lately, in particular with Christians, and my heart has been grieved at how these groups of people have chosen brand management and reputation cultivation as opposed to humility and honesty about who they are and what they were doing. And it grieves my heart and it grieves the heart of God. And the fifth one is time. How do we hoard our time? How does the Lord want to change our perception of time? How does the world tell us we should use our time? We should keep it all to ourselves. It's all, we should have self-care and you need as much time as you can to focus on yourself. That's what's the most important thing to do. Treasures on earth. F. Dale Bruner has this quote, because you can put it up there. He says, A person's goals are in fact very often a person's gods. Ask a person's goals and you find a person's gods. Our goals can be laudable, but if they are not lodged in a relationship with God, we are going to be disappointed, either by the moth of nature, the rust of time, or the thievery of people. So what, in comparison, are treasures in heaven? Jesus isn't talking about a works-based righteousness where we, we hoard our treasures in heaven so that we can earn our place in the kingdom of God. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about cultivating a kingdom life that comes from devoting time and attention to kingdom desires and kingdom priorities. So what are these? They're character. They're the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. They're Christ-likeness. What does it mean to devote your time and attention to these sorts of treasures in heaven? Where we're cultivating that kingdom identity with which we live and breathe and live in the world as ambassadors to the kingdom of God. And these treasures aren't cultivated through greed and hoarding, but they're cultivated by generosity. They're cultivated by something our culture really hates, which is suffering. And they're cultivated by spending time with the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized. It's the opposite way that the world tells us to live in the world. The world tells us it's all about fame and success and brand management, and what you need to do is get to know the best person, the most wealthy person in your life in order to continue to work your way towards those treasures on earth. And Jesus says, no. Generosity. Suffering. Follow me to the poor and to the marginalized. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how do I know if my treasures are in heaven versus on earth? Three questions. How much time do I spend on my life goals, pursuits, etc., as opposed to praying about how Jesus wants to use my desires, my gifts, my passions to further his kingdom? Number two. How much time do I spend editing pictures of my life on social media to portray a certain image as opposed to cultivating a Christ-likeness through prayer and other spiritual disciplines? 
And number three, how do my finances reflect that I believe my treasures are truly in heaven? Am I a generous giver with kingdom priorities? So that's the first comparison, treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. The second one is kind of weird. It's this like weird eye thing that Jesus is talking about. Greedy eyes or generous eyes. So our family lived in Morocco, and something that just permeated the whole culture of Morocco was something called the evil eye. This was present and apparent in every relationship, in every conversation, and every time you entered someone's home. They were keenly aware of the spiritual warfare that was at play. So if you went into someone's home, for instance, say I go to Alex's house and I say, Alex, I love your couch. What a beautiful couch you got. I would then always have to follow it up with a blessing. May God bless you. Because if I didn't, that person assumed that my eyes were leading to jealousy and curse. So they thought that if I was looking at something and I didn't have it and I wanted it, that it was going to put a curse on that person. And you can imagine how this permeates life, how it destroys relationships, how it destroyed the ability for community. I often had friends that would never get together with one another because someone had said they liked something and didn't follow it up with the blessing. Or they knew, oh, that person is jealous of me. Or there was massive discrepancies in the socioeconomic statuses that people couldn't get together because of this very thing, because of the evil eye. It created jealousy and suspicion, and it was also associated with stinginess. So if someone would, they would say, oh, they have the evil eye if they weren't willing to share with their neighbors. You would get the reputation in your community as someone with the evil eye. So Jesus is talking about our eyes, and he compares a healthy eye and a bad eye. A healthy eye is one that's whole and generous compared to a bad eye that's greedy and stingy and selfish. The relationship between our eyes and the rest of our lives, our eyes and our bodies is really interesting. And we see it all throughout the Bible. We see it especially in the book of Proverbs, where it says, a tranquil heart gives gives life to the bones, but envy makes the, a a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And as a comparison to that, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. One of my favorite things about scientific advancement um, is that they're discovering things about our bodies and our minds and how it affects our relationships that only continue to confirm what that has always been true about the way that God has made us and the way in which he designed for us to live in relationship with each other and with him. Science is confirming this grain of creational norms. And there's a study that's come out that shows how jealousy and envy registers in the same part of your brain as physical pain. And this is a quote from that article. It says, if you're starting to feel achy for what seems like no reason, 
ask yourself if you might be feeling jealous. So we recognize, and Jesus is pointing out to us, the importance of how what we see, number one, and how we interpret what we see affects the whole of our lives. It doesn't just stay here. It affects literally our physical body, and it affects the relationships that we have with one another. So it's not an accident that Jesus is once again using the imagery of light to describe this reoriented life as he did at the beginning of the sermon. There's no light in darkness. We can't have eyes that look at other people's lives with greed and with envy and expect to be the light of the world. So do we have kingdom eyes? And how do I know if I have greedy or generous eyes? Three more questions. Number one, do I see material possessions? And is my heart drawn away from trust and kingdom contentment and towards lust and jealousy? Two, kind of picking up on what Clint talked about last week. Do we see people as objects to be used or image bearers of God? And number three, how does our stinginess blind us to our neighbors, the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized? And how do we ultimately miss Jesus when our eyes are blinded by darkness? How would the practice of generosity affect the way we see our neighbors and our communities? So that's the second one, greedy eyes. The third one is the hinge of the whole portion of this passage that Jesus is talking about. Are we a slave to worldly passions or are we a slave to God? Who is our ultimate master? I, I debated going, putting this first and then going through everything else, but really, Jesus does this very poignantly because he's, he's kind of building an argument to then say, look, I've shown you about treasures in heaven and I've shown you about treasures on earth. I've shown you about your eyes. Really, the core of this is who do you submit your life to? Where is your allegiance? Because to live as a follower of Jesus, it's impossible to have divided allegiances. Your heart and your desires can't be drawn in two directions. It's impossible. Your eyes can't be looking in two directions. And your worship cannot be directed in two directions. I had this professor in college um, that said, you cannot call Jesus Lord and tell him no. We can't be people that claim the name of Jesus and, to, and continue to care more about protecting the things of this world than we care about the things of the kingdom. And Jesus cares more about our hearts and more about our allegiances than he does care about the money in our bank account or the car that's in our driveway. Because he knows that our hearts are changed when our allegiances are changed. And as our allegiances are changed, it affects our bank accounts, it affects our jobs, and it affects our relationships. So which God are we worshiping? Am I a slave to worldly possessions, or am I a slave to God? Three questions. What do I wake up thinking about? Am I quickly drawn to anxiety because I don't know what's going to happen the rest of the day and I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill 
or get this thing done? What do I do when I don't feel like I have enough? What's my first mode? Is it anxiety? Is it fear? Is it a scarcity mindset? Like we're talking about, what's mine is mine. I don't have enough for everybody else. I have to conserve and, and I, have to, I have to scrap for whatever I can get because there's not enough in this world. What's mine is mine. The third question is, how do I define enough? Do I have a worldly definition of enough or a godly definition? Do I ask Jesus to define enough for me? Or do I feel like I need to define enough for myself? In Luke 18, Jesus is talking to a man that's known as the rich young ruler. And this guy comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to inherit the kingdom of God? He says, he basically is saying, Jesus, give me a step-by-step. I need a one time and done. What do I need to do to be the kind of person that gets to experience the goodness of God of all of creation? And if you know the story, you know Jesus says, well, did you follow the time? Did you honor your mother? Did you kill anybody? And the guy's like, nope, didn't do those things. And he's can imagine him on this high horse like, yes, I get to do it. I get to inherit the kingdom of God. But Jesus knows ultimately where his allegiances are. And so he gets straight to the point of where this guy's possessions lie. And he says, all right, well, how about you give everything away and you follow me? Not because it was necessarily all of his possessions that mattered, but because Jesus knew where his allegiances lied. He knew that that guy's God was ultimately his possessions. He knew that it was ultimately his money. He knew that that was where his security lied, where his fame lied, where his reputation lied, in all of those worldly possessions and all of those treasures on earth. His allegiance was to a checklist, which gave him some structure to live his life by, but it never actually changed his heart. He couldn't comprehend the invitation of Jesus into this upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. He didn't understand that the way to gain your life was to ultimately lose it. And that the goodness of God was found in obedience to Jesus who changes our hearts, gives us new eyes, and shifts our allegiances. So that we no longer can live in this life saying, I don't have enough because what's mine is mine, but we have new eyes that see, new hearts that have new affections and new allegiances. And this is the same invitation that Jesus is offering to us this morning. This isn't a checklist sermon. It's not a be better. That's not the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a, we shouldn't be able to go through the Sermon on the Mount and be like, yep, check that off, checked it off. Jesus, I'm good, living in the kingdom of God. This sermon is ultimately 
an invitation to a new way of life, a new way of seeing the world, a new way of seeing one another, a new way of seeing God, new affections and new desires. It's an invitation to forsake our idolatry, to ask Jesus for new goals. And in Jesus, there's restoration when there's repentance. This is where he meets us. Every day, every moment, every decision, every question we have about, is this a kingdom priority or is this a godly priority? Jesus, where, what, what do you want me to do? That's the life that he's inviting us into. Because the gospel is good news. This good news of the kingdom of God, of the incarnation that God became man and came and dwelt among us and invited us into this life of creational norms where we're constantly learning what it means to rub our hand against the grain of the creational norms and we're experiencing this flourishing and this wholeness and this beauty that he invites us into. Every moment, every decision brought before the Lordship of Christ. Trusting that the way of the kingdom is the way that we continually witness to Christ's lordship of all of creation. Let's pray.